Welcome to Learning Through Technology, a K-12 EdTech podcast brought to you by STS Education. We strive to be the bridge that connects communities of educators so that they can fulfill the promise of learning through technology. Join us every other week as we connect with education leaders who share their deep experience with the education and technology topics you are grappling with in your own schools and districts. Each interview is designed to bring you tangible ideas you can start using tomorrow. I'm Alex Inman, the founder of Educational Collaborators. And I'm Bob Sabruti, founder of the Edutech Group. Welcome to the show. Bob, today we are going to talk with Susan Bearden about student data privacy and data interoperability. That sounds like a ton of fun. (laughs) It really does? I'm not sure. (laughs) But I think that we have upped the degree of difficulty by inviting a professional viola player to cover this topic with us. So I can't wait to see how they're related. I Absolutely. How does one go from being a professional viola player to the person who's in charge of helping ed tech companies figure out how to port data across different products? Somewhere in there, there's a bridge she crosses that's like (laughs) takes her to a different world, right? She goes from viola world to technology world somewhere. It's like in a movie or something. Let's go find out where that bridge is. Yeah, let's find (laughs) out now. Today we are joined by Susan Bearden, whose superpower in her own words is building high-performing teams. And with her impressive resume, you can see why. Senior Education Pioneers Fellow at the U.S. Department of Education during Obama's second term, Chief Innovation Officer at the Consortium of School Networking, Senior Director of Digital Programs at Innovate EDU NYC, where she ran the esteemed Project Unicorn, and now CEO of Bearden Education Technology Consulting. Susan Bearden, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. It's great to be here. So good to see you again. It's been too long, but you and I have actually known each other for quite a long time. A long time. Back to our independent school days, I do believe. Indeed. And we've moved on, though. You've moved on a lot bigger than (laughs) just about anybody I know. So it's great to have you on the show. So I want our guests to realize that you are well known as an education and technology leader all the way up to the White House administration, but not as many people know, unless they follow you on Facebook, that you are also an accomplished viola player and that your background in your formal education is really in English and viola performance, correct? It is. (laughs) I have two bachelor's degrees and a master's degree in non-technical subject. (laughs) Okay, so how does one go from that to leading some of the most significant initiatives going on in ed tech in the U.S.? That's a great question, because if you'd asked me when I graduated from Oberlin, if I was going to be doing this later in my career, I would have laughed at you. So I started in education, which, of course, I never planned to get into education because both my parents were teachers. And my father was a very well-known teacher. He was the Connecticut Teacher of the Year in 1984. The last thing I wanted to do is go into education. So I went into music instead. And after a couple of years of playing full-time professionally, I decided I wanted to do something different and I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do, but I was on the faculty of a summer music camp at Florida State and discovered that I enjoyed working with kids and was really good at it. And so I ended up becoming a strings and orchestra teacher in Brevard County, Florida for six and a half years. And that's how I landed in education. And then I left the classroom and went back to school, got an associate's degree in database administration, in case you're wondering where the database piece came from, Alex. Okay. Wait a second. Wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. 
Like most people, when they say I'm looking for a change, they pick up like glass blowing. So you changed careers to education. And then where did the impetus or the catalyst for like database management come from? <laughs> I had a couple of summer internships at uh, local companies. And it was funny because the first one I was hired for, I had put that I was familiar with Microsoft Access. You remember that database program? Oh, sure. Oh, and sure. That was probably the thing on my resume that I was the least, had the most least amount of experience with. And that's what they hired me for. So, of course, I crammed and studied and became a Microsoft Access expert. And that's how I got into the database world. <laughs> okay. All right. Through Microsoft Access, like through a, basically a bullet on your resume. So is really. <laughs> exactly. And then after I got a degree in database administration from associate's degree from Eastern Florida State College, and then I was hired to manage the student information system at a local independent school in the area. And I thought I would do that for a year or two, and then I would make the transition into industry. And after 10 months, they promoted me to IT director. And thus my career in education technology management was born. It was completely unexpected. It was not a career path I was looking for. I don't know if you're either that good or the independent school's bar for knowledge is that bad, but. but. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a combination of both. I've shared this story before, actually, but like the principal who hired me to be tech director asked me, he really wanted to hire me as a debate coach and, but he needed, that wasn't a full-time job. So he's like, do you teach English? Do you teach speech? You know, we went through all these different things and he's like, do you do computers? He had no idea how to interpret the answer to that question. So of course my answer was, yes, I do. And so that was the bar for my first tech job is do you do computers? That was my bar. <laughs> I think that's the bar for a lot of people who end up in ed tech actually is do you do computers? Oh, okay. We're going to make you, <laughs> we're going to put you as a technology coordinator or as an ed tech coach or what have you, and then go on from there. So. I got several things out of this so far. First, Susan, you don't have to wait for Alex to say you would have ended up in this position to laugh at him. You can laugh <laughs> at him at any point during this conversation. <laughs> Second, what the heck? I'm slaving away as a systems engineer for years, system administrator, network engineer to get my shot at director of technology. And all I had to do is say, yes, I do. And then go cram. <laughs> like, Bob, you're an engineer. You take the hard way. <laughs> Apparently, my people skills weren't conveyed as well as yours. So. <laughs> well, I did say, yes, I do, with a convincing attitude. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's what it was. Like, I'm sure. Yes, we can. <laughs> I think it had more to do with desperation on the other side of the desk than it had to do with oh, your conviction. Wait. Way, way more. Hence why I asked the question to, to Susan. All right. So Susan, that gets us to like a tech director, which already an interesting story, but there are an awful lot of tech directors that don't get to CIO of COSIN and running Project Unicorn and that kind of stuff. How did you make that transition? Oh, well, I was lucky in that, as you know, I was one of the co-founders of EdTechChat, which was one of the first ed tech Twitter chats that was out there back when Twitter was Twitter and not X or whatever it currently <laughs> is at the moment. So I had gotten to know a lot of folks through ed tech chat. And when I decided it was time for me to move on, I just reached out to a couple of my colleagues just asking for career advice. And it just so happens that I connected with a colleague who worked at the Department of Education at the time when they were going to have some fellowships opening up. So it was really 
there was an element of luck and timing involved, as I think there is so often in so many aspects of our careers. And so I interviewed for the position and they hired me. And so my husband and I up and moved to Washington, D.C. for what was supposed to be one year and ended up being four years. But that's another story. Because <laughs> it was one year at the U.S. Department of Education, right? Yeah. Off the Ed Tech. And then after that, then you transitioned into COSIN, which is a consortium of school networking, which if you're a listener and you're not familiar with COSIN, it really is one of the sort of nationally premier ed tech associations, professional associations, and they provide a lot of value. I was actually just at Fall Q in California and presenting on the COSIN TCO and ROI calculator. It's a great tool. Yeah. Amazing tools available for free. So great work there. So COSIN for several years and then the Project Unicorn thing. Now, was that all remote or did you have to go to New York for that? Project Unicorn was remote. So I actually transitioned to that job during the pandemic when everybody was remote. So it was a relatively easy transition that way. Gotcha. That's a story. That's a journey. It has (laughs) been a journey, (laughs) but it's been a fun one. I've enjoyed the variety of things that I've done in my career, and I've enjoyed the terrific folks that I've got to work with along the way. So Susan, I'm curious about more of your recent work, and you spoke of the Chief Innovative Officer at COSIN, what does that role entail? And as a, the leader of the Project Unicorn, what does that involve? Aside from associate's degrees and violas, and, <laughs> yes, I can. And playing the viola. That's right. That's right. Well, when I was at COSIN, I did a lot of conference presentations, was on the road a fair amount presenting on behalf of COSIN, which was a lot of fun. I got to work with COSIN affiliates in a lot of different states, which I really enjoyed. I got to work with a lot of tech directors, which was very rewarding. We did a first COSIN large district summit at the conference one year, which was great. I collaborated on that with Christina Ishmael, who of course is now the deputy director of the Office of EdTech at the U.S. Department of Education, because the EdTech world is kind of small that way. And it was great. And it was funny because while I was at COSIN, I was actually representing COSIN on the Project Unicorn Steering Committee. So when I made the transition to Innovate EDU, I was already involved in the work. It did definitely help lessen the learning curve. You are actually the second guest on this show to mention Christine Ishmael. And so we're going to have to reach you. And for the record, you both actually attended Oberlin. So (laughs) Christina? Yeah. Well, Christina is kind of like the Kevin Bacon of ed tech. You know, it's like everybody knows Christina. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So that's great. Given your experience, particularly in the last couple of years at Project Unicorn, what are some of the challenges and benefits associated with data interoperability? Great. Well, first of all, in case people are listening and they don't know what data interoperability is, which it's the seamless and secure transmission of data in between different ed tech applications. And the definition that I like to use is it's kind of like, imagine that you have Lincoln Logs and Tinker Toys and... Erector set. Erector set. Okay. Hey, don't forget Legos. I like Legos. Don't and Legos. Legos. <laughs> Legos. Okay. Legos, Tinker Toys, and uh, Lincoln Logs. I like this game. What else are we going to name? So you have these three sets of systems. And all of these systems are used to build things and they all are designed to work with each other. So Legos are designed to work with Legos. Lincoln Logs work with Lincoln Logs and Tinker Toys work with Tinker Toys. And that's the way, if you imagine it, the way data is stored. Data is stored in systems that are often proprietary, just like 
Legos and Lincoln Logs and Tinker Toys. Now, if say that you want to combine Legos with Lincoln Logs, well, it would be difficult to do because they weren't designed to work together. I mean, if you had a 3D printer, you could probably design some kludgy connectors and figure out how to make it work, but it wouldn't be very elegant. It would be expensive. It would require specialized expertise and it wouldn't be scalable. And that is the same challenge that school systems have with data at this time. So basically data are stored in siloed systems that do not easily talk to one another. So the data interoperability movement is a movement to get these data systems talking to one another so that a data can be easily exchanged. Got it. So I understand some of the challenges and I think some of the benefits I think are sort of commonly understood, but let's get into some of those. If you could get them working together, why does it matter? What's the benefit to schools if they get Tinker Toys to work with Lincoln Logs? That's a great question. Well, for instance, for Imagine, well, let's take something very basic. Let's start with like single sign-on and rostering, which is where a lot of school systems start with regard to interoperability. So basically that makes it possible for you to automatically deploy ed tech tools and you can say, okay, we want for our, we want this classroom roster, everybody who's in our student information system who's taking this class needs to have access to these ed tech tools. And wouldn't it be so much easier if you could just automatically create those accounts as opposed to having to manually upload spreadsheets, which back when I was a tech director, I spent a lot of time manually uploading spreadsheets and they all had different formats. I mean, they, they take CSVs, but they all had different formats. You have to manipulate the spreadsheets. It was time consuming. It was a hassle. And so that's just one example of how interoperability can save time. It would make it possible, for instance, if a student just joins a district, that they would be provisioned the ed tech tools that they need that very day, as opposed to having to wait two weeks in order to have access to a tool that everyone else in the classroom already has, which anyone who's been in a school knows happens all the time. But then there's also other, like for more advanced use cases of data interoperability, you might be able to pull in data from different assessment tools and attendance and grades, you know, from your student information system and different tools. And you might be able to combine all that information into, say, an operational data store. And you can query that information to bring together like disparate bits of information. And for instance, identify students who might be at risk for dropping out based on their grade point average and their attendance record and the number of behavioral incidents they've had in a particular amount of time or any other criteria. I mean, when you think about it, once you're able to bring these disparate data together, you can learn all sorts of things about students and create, take like a really whole child approach to education. And other industries are like 20 years ahead of education in this. I mean, other industries are already combining data from different resources and making lots of money off of it. So why shouldn't education be doing the same thing and doing it for good, not to just make money? Right. Especially since we're sitting on all this amazing data across our different systems. Well, you can only use it within oneself, right? And so. Correct. Unless you're pulling them together and, you know, tools like Google Look, what do they rename? Looker Google? Studio. Looker Google, Studio. Is it Looker That's Studio. It. Yeah. Google Looker Studio. And doesn't that sound just a little bit creepy? Doesn't I like, I like Data Studio. I kind of got what that was, but Looker Studio. I like Data you, Studio. Brought to you, you by you the like people what? who brought you Google Glass, a yeah. camera. That's right. That's right. Every location. Right? 
I am detecting a theme here. <laughs> right, right. It's not enough that we give you the data. We're going to come find it and take it. Yes. <laughs> Looker data. <laughs> Looker studio. Where do you collect that from? Google Glass, of course. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, so, let's not pick know, on them. Meta's out there, too, looking for theirs. That's right. Meta could be crazy itself. So interoperability sort of allows us to bring all those things together so that we can start using tools like Looker, like Power BI, Tableau to begin to visualize some of those things across or use other tools like SPSS to do analysis across those tools or across those data sets. Okay, great. I get that. That makes sense. Susan, you spoke about the your example included like assessment tools for teachers to use. And we're awash in them now in this post-COVID world, a combination of every student getting a device in COVID and then every teacher having to come up with a new way to teach because we're remote and then we're half and half and hybrid. We have all of these and one suspects that they weren't vetted completely before implementation. <laughs> with all of these tools, I want to talk about what's Maybe going at the on. schools you run, Bob. I don't know what you're talking about. Clearly, <laughs> Alex doesn't recognize sarcasm when I... <laughs> that's all right. He's Lincoln Logs and I'm Legos. We're not meant to work together. All right, so. I'll be taking choice then. I'm on it. Anyway, so with all of these tools that we're awash in now, and what I would say some dubious privacy policies for some of them, what can we or should we expect from these providers in the way of privacy for student data and protection of it? What are we looking at? Well, what we should expect is often a lot more than what educators are getting. It's one of the reasons why it's important to actually read the terms of service of privacy policies or have someone at your district read the terms of service and privacy policies or leverage some of the tools that are available, like those from the Student Data Privacy Consortium. They actually have a data privacy agreements, a national data privacy agreement that has been adapted by several states that school systems can use and have used, in other words, when they're negotiating with vendors to say, okay, you need to sign this. You need to agree to these terms and conditions before we will use your tool. And the more districts that do that, the more not only are we likely to see tools that actually protect student data, because some of the largest breaches in recent memory have been actually from edtech vendors Everybody thinks about the privacy breaches of school systems, but it's also the vendors that are also very much at risk. And that way you can make sure that we'll be pushing the fields. The more people are demanding that you sign contracts with vendors, that you agree to meet these particular conditions in order to protect student data, then the more the fields will move in that direction. And it's very important because right now, you know, everybody's talking about AI and it's this big wild west and there's all of these tools and there's lots of possibility, but that's also generating a great deal of data. And so it's very important for school systems to think thoughtfully and carefully before they start implementing all of these new tools to make sure that the companies are protecting student data in the way that they're supposed to and that you're not putting student information at risk. So at the end, we're actually going to be talking about some resources to share. And so sharing like the National Data Privacy Agreement would be one of those things. And if there's like repositories, to, I mean, are there like that does some of what I understand part of your job was actually at Project Unicorn is to make sure that there are standards for that safety. But when you're working with multiple companies and at Project Unicorn, did you work with the standards groups or did you work with ed tech vendors or both? 
Yes. <laughs> we worked with both. So we worked with the standards bodies. We also worked very closely with vendors. And we also worked with districts as well. Okay. So so how... Riddle me this. A district wants this level of protection. Riddle me this. I like it, Alex. I like it. (laughs) You got a district that has this criteria for student data privacy. You have a standards-based organization that has this standard because there needs to be more flexibility in order to get the data across, blah, 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 blah. And then you have a ed tech vendor who has, and I'm sort of intentionally going below the screen for those of you who are listening to the podcast, my hand is low. The lower standard for the ed tech vendor. How do you marry that and allow for interoperability with potentially nearly endless different standards for data privacy? That's a great question. And that's why Project Unicorn exists, because we are trying to get the field vendors, districts, and the standards bodies to work together in order to solve this problem because it is complicated. And, you know, interoperability. It poses both benefits and risks to student data privacy. I mean, definitely the seamless transfer of data between systems is definitely safer in and of itself than, say, downloading uh, spreadsheets of student data and saving it on your computer desktop and then uploading it to another system and then forgetting to delete it from your desktop. And then someone steals the unencrypted laptop, which has all these students' social security numbers, and then you have a rural security problem. But it also being able to have that data exchanged between different systems means it's even more important for school systems to be thoughtful and intentional, not just about their own privacy policies and who they allow to have access to student data, but also with the vendors that they're working with and to make sure that all the vendors that they're working with are taking steps to keep student data secure. So it is complicated, Alex, to answer your question. I do not have an easy answer, but that was why Project Unicorn was created, to try and sort through these problems and come up with solutions. ViewSonic is your go-to for engaging students, fostering collaboration, and elevating learning outcomes. Offering a broad array of future-ready visual solutions, training, and tools that adapt to your school's changing needs, ViewSonic is more than a brand. It's your educational edge. Explore the possibilities today at www.viewsonic.com edu and witness how innovation meets expertise in the world of education technology. All right, you don't have to name names, but did you ever work with a vendor who, when you kind of said this is the standard that we need to have of data privacy and interoperability, they eventually just said, no, forget you and walked away? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, who was it? Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and a, no, I'm not naming names, Alex. <laughs> for 2000, for 200, awkward questions you get asked on a podcast, Alex. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> The answer is yes. Yes. Got it. So that's Alex's specialty is awkward questions. They're all awkward. Well done, sir. Very well done. Well, the answer is what we need is to push the field so that fewer of those vendors say no. And sometimes it's hard. So I was going to ask whose responsibility is it for data privacy, whether it's the end user or the school or the provider. But it seems like one of those things that everybody, this is a much like Project Unicorn, Everybody has their part to play in this. So what can end users do? What should the schools be doing? What's our role in protecting all this data? 
Great questions for a thousand, Bob. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's interesting because depending on the states, a lot of states have passed privacy laws in recent years. And some states, for instance, will require a school system to have someone who is responsible for student data privacy at their school, basically a chief privacy officer. The reality is most school systems don't have that kind of specialized expertise. They don't have the kind of resources that they need to be able to have a chief privacy officer, like a full-time chief privacy officer. That's something every school should have, but something that in reality is just part of someone else's job. And because some states require it, some states don't, it's kind of all over the map. But you are 100% correct that it is everybody's responsibility. I think that obviously the IT department often has an important role to play, especially from a cybersecurity standpoint. But it's important to educate uh, school employees and staff about student data privacy. I mean, I remember the time when I went up to a, a printer in the, you know, we had a shared printer that we would send print jobs to. And I went there and there was a, an Excel spreadsheet that had a list of student social security numbers that they needed for, that a legitimate purpose for the school, they had the social security numbers, they needed it for a school trip. And they were going on a tour of the White House and they needed to have student socials, but they had just sent it to the printer and left it on the printer where just anyone could go walk in and see. So those kinds of challenges are real. So it's important that School systems take a holistic approach to protecting student data privacy. Obviously, you have to have technical safeguards in place, but you also have to educate faculty and staff. And you have to educate students so that they know how to protect their privacy. And that's hard when middle school students love sharing passwords. I mean, that's just a thing, you know? <laughs> yep. It's an uphill battle. So do English teachers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so... You've given us sort of the national data privacy standards, and you mentioned that several states are adopting their own data standards. Let's actually probe into that just deliberately for a second. Like, what kinds of standards and legislation and regulations exist or should be consulted to understand sort of this evolving world of data privacy? Like, what do people need to know about what's out there with regards to regulations and standards? Well, definitely at the state level, I would check with your state board of education. Also, the Future Privacy Forum, they have a division called Student Privacy Compass that's focused specifically on student data privacy and resources for school systems and districts. They actually track state legislation. So if you go to their website, you can see what the latest privacy legislation is. They provide links to legislation, whether what status is it at. So that's one way to find out what's happening with the state privacy laws in your particular state. The federal privacy laws, the ones, of course, that are FERPA is the one that applies to all school systems who are receiving certain federal funds from the U.S. Department of Education. COPPA is another one that it technically applies to school systems. Wait, that's how you pronounce it? Providers. COPPA? COPPA. 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 I've been mispronouncing it my entire career. The C-O-P-P-A, right? Yeah. Potato, the children's online potato, tomato, tomato. <laughs> tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. I thought you were going to break out into like Copacabana, but no, I, I went a different route. Copacabana. Now we're really we're never, ourselves, we're, guys. He like never coming back from this. We're never going to make it back. <laughs> you started it, Bob. You started this. <laughs> she was potato potatoing before I cope it. <laughs> he um, was a showgirl. Oh, dear. Right. <laughs> Who hit the mute button for Alex? 
All right, let's try something a little more serious. So, Susan, you have quite the spectrum here from viola to federal policy. What are you doing now that is interesting? Or what's next? Or what would you like to do? Great question. Well, currently, I'm working as a consultant, as the lead writer, and along with uh, the U.S. Department of Education and a consortium of other organizations on the National Education Technology Plan which hopefully will be released in January of 2024. So it's currently, we've submitted a final draft and it's currently in clearance, which is a federal process by which lots of people in the federal government get their eyes on it and they review it and make comments. And then you have to address those comments. So it is currently in the clearance process. So I've been spending a lot of time and effort on that. And I'm going to be doing more consulting now that I have a little bit more time as you can imagine, NETP was pretty intense there for a while. It's a 114-page document-ish. It might be longer now that we've added additional citations. I'm not sure. Those tend to take up a lot of space on the page. But I'm going to be doing more consulting. But one of the things I love doing is helping school systems. There's nothing that makes me happier. One of my favorite things to do when I was at COSIN or when I was working with Project Unicorn was when we would do technical assistance calls with vendors not just with vendors, but with districts. And we give them information and it was so helpful to them. And they say, thank you so much for sharing this. And that just made me feel so good because being a tech director is a really hard job. Being a database administrator is a really hard job. And I like to make things easier for people. So yes, stay tuned for the next professional adventures. <laughs> I think you don't even know what it's going to be yet, but it's going to be something radically different. Like, Or maybe even go back to professional music and go full circle. <laughs> well, I was thinking for the next podcast, she would come on with her viola and she would play Copa for you. And oh, then we can now we're talking. And she could play. While them. Bob builds with Legos and I build with Lincoln Logs. And excellent. This now we're talking. I love that's, this plan. That's a podcast right there. There's some professionalism I love this plan. at its best. <laughs> so, Susan, we asked these kind of last few questions of, of everyone who's on our show. So, who in the world of ed tech or education would you most like to take to lunch? That's such a great question because there's so many people I'd like to take to lunch. We will allow a big table. You'll allow a big table? Oh, cool. I would like to take a group of technology directors out to lunch because I appreciate all the work that they do so often being a tech director, you're like an unsung hero, whereas when everything is going smoothly, people don't know that you exist. And then when everything goes to hell in a handbasket, all the knives come out and people are staring at you with evil glares. And meanwhile, when things are going smoothly, they think, oh, you're not doing anything. When in reality, you're like an underwater like ballet dancer, you know, like those synchronized swimmers who they look so beautiful above the water and down below, they're like paddling like mad to stay afloat. And I feel like that was a good analogy for my time as an IT leader is that if things are running smoothly, people don't see everything that's going on underneath to keep it running smoothly. So I would say I would just love to have a nice big dinner, a treat, a bunch of tech directors together for an evening of fellowship and just talk and shop and having a good time. So this begs the question, what do you call a group of tech directors, right? Like a murder of crow. What is a group of tech directors? I have an answer, but I wonder what you think you would call it. I'm dying to hear what your answer is, Bob. I would just call it like a group of really cool people, but I think you have something more creative in mind. Well, I think it's a data of tech directors, right? You have a murder of crow and you have a pod of whales. You have a data of 
tech directors. So here's your homework. What do you call a group of tech directors? <laughs> a data? That's what I'm throwing out there. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come up with a better one with time. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> you can try a data. It is plural. That is one thing that people oftentimes forget is that the singular of data is datum. And it's not a single data. Okay, there's your grammar lesson for the day. All right, last question. You've actually shared a lot of great resources, which I'm hoping that you will share with us kind of via email afterwards so that we can link to all of our listeners or viewers. But are there other, you just spontaneously recommended many great resources. Are there other great resources that our listeners should know about? Well, let's see. The Future Privacy Forum has some courses for education leaders who want to learn more about how to manage student data privacy, as does COSIN. Those are great organizations. Some other organizations in the privacy space that may not be as familiar to, to the tech director folks are the Data Quality Campaign and the Center for Democracy and Technology. They also have some interesting stuff going. Definitely, COSIN's Trusted Learning Environment has some really terrific resources. The Trusted Learning Environment is a seal that in order to get the trusted learning environment seal, they have a lot of resources and some great rubrics to help you evaluate kind of where you stand on student data privacy. And also tech, check out the the U.S. Department of Education. They have a they have a student data privacy website that's actually quite good and has lots of good resources. I'll send you a link to all of those, Alex, so that you can add them to the show notes. Awesome, really appreciate it. So. Susan, thanks so much for joining the show today. This was so interesting. I learned a ton on this and got to spend time with an old friend and Bob. So good to have this time. Susan, <laughs> thanks so I'd much. like you to write that down. That was the first time Alex was funny. And Thank you, Alex. Because I think it's like once every 76 years. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. I'd like to thank you for being fun and knowledgeable. Thank you. That's I try. Rare combination to find. <laughs> I try what well, you mean student data privacy isn't like a fascinating topic that like right, makes yeah, people right. laugh. You got to get a bunch of privacy professionals at dinner over a glass of wine, Bob, really. I mean, you haven't seen fun till you get the privacy nerds talking, let me tell you. Wow, you have a low bar for entertainment. Susan, thank you for joining <laughs> us. <laughs> and I hope you all will stay with us and subscribe. Have a great day. Awesome. Thanks so much, Alex. I gotta admit, I actually, I was being a little sarcastic. I didn't expect to have that much fun talking about data interoperability, but that was a fun conversation. And interesting. Like, who knew that it was interesting, even without the viola? But it did add. Like, that was the icing, right? <laughs> the viola. I mean, you know, it occurs to me, Alex, we're getting to be somebody. We've professional viola player, professional esports person. I mean, we're moving up, man. Or we're looking bad compared to them. Well, that part is definitely true, but the power of sort of coolness by association that we are getting through this podcast is certainly fun. I did a data product or project rather in one of the schools that I was at where I lost my data coordinator for almost six weeks during the summer because, you know, she was going from the admissions pool and getting them into all the different databases that they needed to go to. And it took us about a year to figure out how to get all those databases talking together. And we used an open source product to do this. And when we were all done, what took her six weeks, pretty much finished in about six seconds. And it only took us about another maybe two hours to validate the data. 
before it was done. And I ended up getting you know, my best employee back in summertime, which was the busiest time of the year. So this stuff matters, you know, this stuff matters. So never doubted it about it mattering. It's something that's not at the forefront of anybody's mind. Here's what I was thinking. Like we were laughing and it was a good time though. You know, Susan was great to talk to or whatever, but I think that people who listen to this podcast are going to be like, Oh, that was fun. And then the podcast is going to end and they're going to be like, Oh crap, student privacy. I got to do something about that. So we'll be providing some information about what you can do to start your path to student data privacy in our show notes. There's a lot there and it's an important topic. Hopefully it was an entertaining topic as well. At least we entertained ourselves, which is pretty much the thesis of this entire podcast. My dad would say it doesn't take much to entertain idiots. And here we are. <laughs> I'm envisioning the scenes from the movie, The Jerk. <laughs> and this lamppost, I need that. <laughs> yeah, to a certain audience, I don't know that we're going to translate since our, our references are from 70s, 80s, and 90s. But we'll try harder. <laughs> we'll try harder. All right, Bob, till next episode. <laughs> See you, Alex. Learning Through Technology, a K-12 EdTech podcast is brought to you by STS Education, a Pacific one-source company. To learn more about how educators can leverage technology to drive successful educational outcomes, check us out at www.stsed.com. Connect with us by searching for Learning Through Technology in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And click subscribe so you don't miss an episode. On behalf of the team at STS Education, thanks for joining us.